Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he's the highest paid lover in Beverly Hills. He leaves women feeling more alive than they've ever felt before, except one. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Uh, Is that the tagline for American Gigolo? Oh, it certainly is. I mean, it it was pretty obvious Mm -hmm. that like it had to be the highest paid lover in Beverly Hills. But you know, that's quite a mouthful, as I assume he was. Yeah, it's as soon as you started saying it, I thought this is probably the one for American Gigolo, but it also sounds weirdly too kind of peppy for that film because that yeah. film is like a lot of Paul Schrader stuff from there. It's it's kind of quite clinical and cold, and that does make it sound a little like more of a fun romp than it actually is. Mm, it makes it sound like the Mills and Boone novelization of American Gigolo, <laughs> which is something that I would kind of weirdly read, I think. Or it makes it sound like Juice Bigelow, male Gigolo. <laughs> yeah, if if nothing else, I think doing these taglines that solve the episodes has demonstrated that marketing is all lies. Mm, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, you know, the the better the tagline, generally, the worse the film. Yeah. Um, so you know we've learned that from a kind of uh, scientific standpoint which is nice I felt like this week we would do another kind of comfort episode because once again it has been a ghastly week full of kind of awfulness with uh, kind of uh, Ed's homeland and my current country of residence Britain uh, sliding into feudal chaos having spectacular kind of shot themselves in the foot by calling a referendum which didn't really work out the way that anyone really wanted to um, and the kind of country has resembled an episode of the thick of it pretty much of the <laughs> week, but one that you would kind of think that was too far-fetched. But uh, whilst that's a terrible thing that's happened, it does have quite a lot of ramifications when it comes to a kind of film and media world, because removing oneself from a single market is uh, probably not the best idea. But especially when it comes to film production in the UK, it's uh, kind of there's been a lot of stuff floating around this week about the implications of, of leaving the EU and, and what that would, what ramifications it would have. It would um, have kind of deep and lasting ramifications on exhibition. Um, I mean, uh, the showroom cinema, which is something we talk about a lot. Ed used to work there. You know, it gets a huge amount of its funding from the EU, kind of as well as a lot of independent cinemas in England do. And they're kind of like done so, so they can kind of support showing foreign cinema in the UK, which is a kind of a hugely important thing to lose. Um, and also kind of production. The EU media program uh, has kind of ploughed like hundreds of millions of pounds into the British film industry in kind of the last decade, uh, including kind of films like The King's Speech, Four Lions, Slumdog Millionaire, every single film that Warp Films have ever made, I found out this week, uh, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, Amy, Shaun the Sheep, Under the Skin, kind of big internationally successful films that suddenly are uh, starting to feel a little bit nervous. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously only anecdotal evidence, but I, I certainly saw a lot of people on Twitter and Facebook who I either know or who are friends of people I know who work in the film industry who essentially have been saying, yeah, we we know people whose funding has already been pulled for like projects they were planning to make because of the uncertainty like as uh you know this this is too complicated to get into in terms of the politics of the whole brexit thing and the existential crisis that has been induced by it but Mm -hmm. the 
the thing that's that's whole, weird about it is that it's a, a thing that still might not happen because it's not legally binding and everything, but it's also a situation where you know there's so there is so much uncertainty. People don't know is it is are we going to start leaving the EU in October when we get a new prime minister? Is it going to wait until a general election? So everyone is just panicking because it's obviously a terrifying and huge change and so all of this funding that was there is just in all of the arts and the sciences and for research and thing is all just suddenly drying up and everyone is just incredibly uncertain about what's going to happen in the future uh so yeah it's all all terrible basically at the moment yeah and it, i mean it all comes down to kind of market forces the the markets the, the kind of stock markets if you will don't like uncertainty and when there is uncertainty flying around um, and I can assure our listeners who aren't in the UK, everything feels uncertain uh, at the minute that they kind of uh, shit the bed. And uh, essentially that's what's been happening since kind of Friday with, you know, the, the single biggest loss in kind of value of currency in, in, in Sterling's history. And obviously the markets when they open tomorrow, I dare say, you know, will even if it goes up, it will probably go down again. It's going to kind of fluctuate, and when that happens, people don't want to put their money uh, in things as kind of risky as films. Uh, and also, in particularly in terms of the British film industry, it does like you listing off those films there. Robbie Collins from the Telegraph also listed a, a long list of films on Twitter that had received money and support as a result of the EU, and it was just basically every good British film of the last. 15 years or something and it was so apparent that without the eu a lot of great british culture that and all of these really great films that emerged kind of against all odds out of the british film industry which as we've talked about is kind of a desolate wasteland in many ways it's very hard to get films made in the uk it's very hard to get them distributed and it's very hard for to get people to see them so without all that support britain's film culture as it exists would be immeasurably poorer if we hadn't had that money pouring in and it's hard to imagine the British government stepping up to support the arts because conservatives are not renowned for wanting to support daring art that in many ways criticised them, uh, as evidenced by the fact that the most recent Palm Door winner was a Ken Loach film directly uh, criticising austerity measures. And it's also hard to also imagine much in the way of kind of private money making up the difference because... British cinema has never exactly been the biggest moneymaker. Occasionally you get a King's Speech or a Tinker Tailor that makes money, but mostly they just skirt by on being, you know, the the good ones just skirt by and just being really good films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of, uh, in, in many ways, the depressing thing is it feels like a slide back to the 80s, uh, mm. kind of, which wasn't the greatest period for UK cinema uh, just because it was there was so little money uh, flying around and what did seem to come out of it in a successful sense all turned out to be kind of false dawns, the British are coming, etc, etc, chariots of fire, all that nonsense. But yeah, it's it doesn't feel great uh, right now. But yeah, we kind of have to wait and see how it pans out. But if uh, anyone wants to reboot the Confessions of a Window Cleaner franchise, which... For a long time were the only successful films being made in britain now may be the perfect time yeah i don't know who would get in to play the robin asquith role but i'm sure there'll be no shortage of people he'd probably still do it yeah and that guy really did move from like job to job he was the definitive jack of all trades <laughs> um he could do anything in other news 
Vinyl, uh, HBO's much vaunted new show from uh, the creative team, including Martin Scorsese, Mick Jagger, and uh, HBO stalwart uh, Terence Winter, was renewed for a second season and then instantly cancelled, uh, or kind of very shortly after cancelled, in quite unceremonious fashion. Um, it had a lot of hype behind it, had a lot of kind of star wattage behind it, and uh, seems to have kind of fizzled out pretty quickly. Yeah, it's remarkable because HBO are, unless horses have died, they tend to be very supportive of shows for at least a few years, even if there's not much of an upside, you know, obviously they put things, they did like two seasons of Enlightened, a show that basically no one watched and was brilliant, but you know, that was not a show that would have lasted past one season on most other networks. Uh, so to see them take a bath on what has been, what, what was their most kind of high profile launch for a new show in a while was quite a thing to see but then when you dig into the economics of it and they say like the first season cost like a hundred million dollars to make because Mm. of the the talent involved because of it was recreating a period drama uh you could see why even getting kind of middling numbers would probably make them think yeah this isn't worth us going back to yeah and it, it i mean i only saw the first couple of episodes but it, it just there was just something missing. It, was, it just didn't seem to be playing to the right tempo. Punning pun intended. Yeah, I mean the sense that I got from what little I saw of it, I only watched like the first episode of it, was that it didn't it didn't have kind of a ring of authenticity to it. Even though like Mick Jagger was there during the seventies, it definitely felt like a collection of cliches or like someone had hazily remembered what the seventies was like and then just kind of went off of their barely coherent memories which is Mm. not the most doesn't make for the most compelling drama really yeah and uh on on kind of a similar token uh you've got uh cameron crowe uh he's got a tv show called roadies which is uh, kind of a tv attempt to capture that kind of almost famous spirit almost famous a film for regular listeners will know that me and ed kind of despise is that too strong it's not strong enough no, it's not. <laughs> but that has taken a bit of a critical mauling uh, as well. It feels like uh, uh, kind of fuzzy 70s music nostalgia probably isn't the flavour of the month right now. Yeah, someone suggested on Twitter that maybe Roadies would be like the 30 Rock to Vinyl Studio 60. That might right. be the one that no one was talking about initially, but which ends up outlasting. Uh, and I think it's just that they're all just going to... It seems like they're both going to be just completely dead on arrival. And yeah, like you say music nostalgia from auteurs are not what people are really excited about right now they want dragons yeah we want dragons and lots of them we're going to talk a little bit about rogue one very kind of briefly uh we talked uh a while ago i think two episodes ago maybe three uh about how it was entering a period of reshoots and um a lot of people got very kind of upset about that because they were like oh the film's dreadful and then kind of there were rumours flying around that we were going to reshoot nearly half of it in two weeks, which was absurd. And then a kind of a whole other bunch of rumours came out and then there was kind of press releases to kind of put out the fire. And then, you know, a big kind of entertainment weekly piece came out this week and it turned out that, yeah, they just did some reshoots because they planned to put it in. Obviously, they were rewriting the script as they were going and they wanted to, they watched the film back that they'd already made and they wanted to add some bits to make it better, which is, I think, what me and you said would happen isn't it Ed? yeah if if people go back and listen to our episode on troubled productions basically what we said about the rogue one reshoots is that they're probably going in because they want to fix some things that they didn't quite get the first time 
that they're probably not going to be reshooting a huge amount or changing the story or the tone because that would be crazy. They probably had all of this stuff planned because it's a big production and you don't want to go in without some sort of safety net. You don't want to assume you're going to get it all right the first time. And the reason why it would be five weeks of scheduled reshoots is because it's a big multinational cast and they're all working actors. So it's going to be really hard to get everyone together for like the week or so that it would take to shoot all of that stuff. And if you go through the interview, which is between people like Kathleen Kennedy, who's basically in charge of all of the Star Wars of now and Gareth Edwards, who obviously directed the film, they essentially said all of those things. And (laughs) from that, I think it's possible to draw two conclusions. One, that you and I, as consummate Hollywood insiders, looked at the situation, analysed it, completely knew exactly what everything everything was, and we said it, and everyone was like, no, you're wrong. We were like, no, we know what shit, how shit gets done in this town. This town being a town that is 2,000 miles away from where I'm sitting and 3,000 miles away from you are. Sorry, 5,000 mm. miles away from where you are. Or, two, Kathleen Kennedy listens to this podcast, the <laughs> film's a complete disaster, and she heard us, and she said, this, these guys know how to do damage control. And... Yeah. I would just like to say, Kathy and to Gaz, if they're both listening, which I'm sure they are, it's fine that you stole our ideas. You know, we're here, we, we do this podcast to help people win the industry. We just ask for our customary half of percent of the gross. Mm. Oh, hang on. Fair. I've got, uh, which one's the good one? Is it gross or net? Because I don't want, like, I mean, I don't want to get caught up in, I mean, it's a long story, but like there are certain tax implications <laughs> that I'd like to avoid. Uh, so if I can just, I mean, just a bit of the merchandising would do, or just if Miss Kennedy is listening, just a suitcase full of unmarked, non-consecutive £5 notes just left in a dustbin near my work would be fine. And if they can get it all done within the next two years, that'd be really helpful because things may be different in two years. And the, the companies that we usually put all of our money through, uh, they had they were in the news recently and, you know, we need to change what we usually do. Yeah, laundering money is going to become much harder. But yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, I mean, it, it it kind of proves the point that like, if you've got the money to do it, you will reshoot your bits of your film. Mm. I think. I mean, imagine if if Stanley Kubrick ever had the money to reshoot his <laughs> bits of his films, he'd never <laughs> finish them. He'd never fucking finish it. He'd still be shooting now. Yeah. What's is the say? The saying is something like, "A film is never finished; it's just abandoned." Yeah. And yeah, that, that is pretty accurate. And you definitely get the sense that, like, like we said at the time. If, if everyone had the money to reshoot everything, they would, because no one is ever happy. Nothing's ever perfect. You just have to do the best with, with what you have. And I think also this whole thing proves either, A, that we're really good at damage control and that everyone should listen to us, or that the micro film blogging world that has arisen pretty much entirely around Star Wars rumours and in a lesser extent around blockbuster rumours is generally peopled by people who don't understand how the film industry works, even in mm. the most kind of basic tangential way. Yeah, yeah. It was also revealed this week that Forrest Whitaker was playing, they were very coy about it, that he's playing someone from uh, the Star Wars universe that you would, you'll recognise, the fans will recognise when they hear his name. And then I was like, oh man, this is exciting, because like they've done, you know, this is the Star Wars nerd in me talking now, that they've kind of tried to incorporate a lot of those things from what is now called Legends, the EU canon, uh, and try to kind of take the best bits of them and legitimise them by putting them in the new canon there. Added uh, Admiral Thrawn to the new series of Rebels, which is very cool because he was always a very cool kind of a character. But everyone was like, oh man, are we, is Forrest Whitaker going to be like Kyle Katarn or something? But no, he's just some arsehole from the Clone Wars that no one remembers. So yeah, that was a big letdown. Yeah, that was 
I mean, obviously, it's probably big news for people who watched The Clone Wars and are big fans of it, but it is very much kind of a bit of a damp fart of a reveal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I think that goes to show what was reshot, because in the trailer for Rogue One, Forrest Whitaker's character's got really short hair, and in the new new kind of shots of him, he's got a completely different haircut. So mm. unless he has, like, a kind of a makeover <laughs> in the middle of the show that, you know, perhaps... He's not really getting the the loyalty from his rebels that he he demands. That maybe he should try a kind of a more uh, kind of a wilder look, uh, which is unlikely. And everyone knows that you don't cut people's hair in the middle of a film. Uh, just I mean mainly just for continuity reasons. Unless you're the the guy who's the lead in uh, Fahrenheit four five one who hated Francois Truffaut so much that he constantly changed his hair so the continuity would never match up. I, th- I think, you know, maybe they've, they've talked about how they want to experiment with different genres. Maybe in the middle of this Rogue One war film, there's a bit of a rom-com element to it where he's like trying to get a date with a girl and he's like, he doesn't have the confidence in his hair, doesn't look quite right. And Felicity Jones just kind of takes him apart and they go, they have like a girl's day out. <laughs> and He gets a makeup, they go, buy shop, go shopping, he buys some fresher, cleaner armour. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, at the end, they get to go to the spring formal together. Yeah. One other thing, which is total nonsense, um, is we've talked about the Ghostbusters reboot that's coming out that a lot of the internet don't like uh, purely because they're arseholes, but, uh, which we're very much behind because uh, it involves some kind of premium talent. Unfortunately, they've released the theme song this week. I think you can call it the theme song from the OST. And uh, it is dog shit. In kind of every conceivable sense. Yeah, we'll just uh, drop in a bit now for people to sample. Only a, only a moment or so. Like you say, it's not very good. It is not... I mean, I don't hate it purely because... I don't have a huge amount of affection for the original song. It's the sort of thing that I associate with like going to novelty nights at clubs, you know, kind of one hit wonders and stuff. Um, And it's like a perfectly fine rip off of a Huey Lewis song, but it's not, it's not kind of great, but this version is, I would classify it as aggressively bland and very, very lazy as if they've taken the original, barely changed it then got Missy Elliott to come in and just do a half-assed rap over it. Mm. It feels a little bit like you've gone to a really shit funfair um, <laughs> and you've, you've gone in the haunted house and they wanted to put some spooky music over the top, but they didn't have the rights for the Ghostbusters song. So they got like some like pub band to recreate it, but the pub band had never heard the song before. <laughs> And that's what you've got. That's that's the kind of noise it makes. It is, it is I really wanted, like, I'm so behind this film and this remake. I mean, not driven by any love of the original. I mean, I do like the first film, but I remember the second film, and that's awful. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of, it's not driven by any of, of that kind of, like, uh, nostalgia for me. Um, I just like, I just don't want people to be arseholes about a film they haven't seen for reasons that make no sense beyond them being an idiot. But this makes it very difficult. <laughs> this is really, really bad. Like, really poor. Like, uh, I mean, I'm going to go so far as to say that I'm going to boycott the film now. <laughs> or at least wait until you hear the op- the telltale kind of bars of the theme tune and just jam headphones on mm. for a few minutes and just get whoever's sitting next to you to just tap you as soon as it ends. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me know when this is over, when this ordeal is over, because it's horrible. But yeah, that's the news this week. And uh, like we said at the start, it's been uh, a pretty kind of downbeat week for everyone concerned. Again, kind of just endless cycle of misery in this world now. But to kind of give ourselves uh, a distraction from it, we thought we'd cheer ourselves up by talking about the O.J. Simpson murder trial <laughs> um, <laughs> through the prism of an ESPN documentary which has come out recently and finished last week. It's from the team behind the 30 for 30 series. But uh, whilst those are kind of like small contained films on individual subjects, um, this is something all altogether more ambitious. Um, it is uh, a seven and a half hour documentary called O.J. Simpson Made in America and I first heard of it when someone had kind of written a review of it and said it's probably the best thing that ESPN have ever done. And uh, you watched it and kind of seemed to confirm that suspicion and told me to watch it, and here we are. Yeah, I, in a weird way, this is probably my most anticipated film of the year because I remember seeing a write-up of it. I, I saw it, like the initial news story where it was reported like they are working on a like a multi-hour documentary, and this the news, I think, broke around about the time that FX's The People versus O.J. Simpson was airing. And so I was already primed to consume OJ-related content um, that doesn't benefit him financially in any way. And mm-hmm. um, and then like it played in its entirety at a couple of film festivals. I think at Sundance they played it, and all the reviews were, like you say, this is the best thing ESPN have ever done. This is kind of a real groundbreaking work of documentary about race and gender and celebrity in America and about the history of LA and all of these things. And these are all just kind of hitting all of my buttons, basically of like, this is what I want to see in, uh, in a documentary about this case that is really fascinating and, and kind of heartbreaking and, and bizarre. And as soon as it started airing, I literally just sent you a, te- a message on WhatsApp saying, yeah, we have to talk about this on the show because it just looks, it's just so incredible and compelling mm. and it is in such a way because i mean we'll kind of lay it out first that what makes the the kind of documentary so good um is surely it's breadth it's kind mm. of so far reaching it's kind of all-encompassing uh film which talks about the oj simpson murder trial which kind of everyone knows about that kind of the facts are fairly well established and kind of it's it covers no real new ground in that sense, but what it does is it establishes context in a way that you can't do uh, in ninety minutes. It spends uh, a good kind of three to f- three and a half hours um, essentially talking about who age who OJ was as a as a sports person. I think you said you were surprised that you you didn't know he was quite so revered as a footballer. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I knew that he was a he was a footballer who then became an actor, and like it, actually, I knew him as an actor first because as a kid, I was a really big fan of the Naked Gun films, mm-hmm. and so I knew that he had played football. I didn't realize that he was a record playing <laughs> record breaking football player who broke the record for rushes in a season, yards rushed in a season. I didn't realize that he was, you know, this iconic figure from all the Hertz marketing that he was in. That he was such a larger than life persona in American life. For me, he was just like a guy who was famous, who killed two people allegedly, but obviously he did, but you know, that is that. So the, for me, one of the most striking things was after watching those, that first episode, which does deal a lot with him, his, his career at uh, USC, I believe yep. his college. And then his early career. And uh, that really established me. Oh, like this guy was a truly phenomenal, phenomenal, athlete and who became a superstar because of his prowess 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was a record-breaking football player. He seemed to... This is one of the key things about the film. They talk about the way that uh, O.J. Simpson transcended race hmm. by uh, essentially choosing the way he was portrayed, which seems like you know a very kind of progressive and, and positive thing to do. But he only ever seemed to choose the way he was portrayed on kind of white people's terms, which was uh, very kind of problematic when seen against the backdrop of sports stars being used by kind of uh, civil rights groups uh, in in a protest sense. And it talks quite a lot about the the political climate at the time, the kind of late 60s, and how uh, he was asked to participate in boycotts of things and and kind of uh, make statements. And he kind of, you know, we see footage of him saying, you know, he respects what they're doing, but he doesn't want any part of that. He played his own game kind of from the start. And, you know, that is a huge part of, of kind of where he ended up. Yeah, I mean, it was very, obviously, this this wasn't planned. But, you know, Muhammad Ali died the week or the week, week or so before the documentary started airing. And one of the things that everyone, well, I say everyone, a lot of people were said about Muhammad Ali, oh, he transcended race, which got a lot of pushback because people said, well, when you say he transcended race, what you mean is you were deeply uncomfortable with the fact that he was a black activist and that he was a Muslim. But by saying he transcended race, you can ignore that. And Mm -hmm. watching the OJ Simpson, I think it's Zoe Turr, the, uh, the pilot, the helicopter pilot who does say that he transcended race to uh to the realm of celebrity and like when when she talks about the bronco chase she says if og simpson were black that shit wouldn't have happened Mm -hmm. he'd he'd be on the ground getting clubbed and that is that is one of the things the film puts across is that he genuinely did transcend race because he was so famous that he was able to ignore black people for most of his career he cut himself off from the community he lived in brentwood which was a predominantly white neighborhood uh, and then like Danny Bakewell, who is one of the civil rights kind of leaders who come, becomes quite a vocal uh, supporter of OJ during the trial, does say at one point that in, in relation to uh, OJ's relationship with the black community, that he was basically a non-entity who didn't make any of the sacrifices that people like Muhammad Ali and, all, and Jim Brown made, people who put their careers at risk by standing up for civil rights or faced jail because of their beliefs he was he was someone who essentially just ignored all of that and advanced himself as opposed to working for the advancement of other people in his community Mm. and it's it's a good deal of the first two episodes establishing that but then also building up to the the kind of atmosphere of what it was like to be in la uh, kind of the late 80s, early 90s um, and kind of running all the way back to kind of the Watts riots and stuff. We got a little bit of that in The People versus O.J. Simpson, but it was kind of merely a kind of a prologue, wasn't it? It was not really kind of expanded on in any way. Um, and what I found really surprising was, well, I mean, I don't know why I was surprised by it, but like, you know, having LAPD officers being interviewed saying, you know, people said it was, there was kind of institutional racism from top to bottom. I have to say, I've been a cop for 30 years and, you know, I never saw anything like that. And then, you know, these interviews are punctuated by repeated examples of <laughs> uh, the LA acting in, in kind of aggressive, violent, racist ways. And at one point, Mark Furman actually gets misty-eyed and nostalgic for chokeholds. Yeah, does I think it's specifically talking about, like, the Rodney King thing. He says, yeah. like, well, he said it wouldn't have happened if we could have choked him. <laughs> 
yeah, it's the it's one of those things where you think, oh, he's like older, maybe he's mellowed. Nope, <laughs> he is still a clearly quite terrible person uh, who did some good police work in one yeah. instance, but the rest of the time was horribly racist. Yeah, it was it was crazy to kind of. I mean, it, it's it's become ingrained on on the kind of public public consciousness. Uh, like images like the Rodney King video and, and, and things like that. But like, you know, to keep seeing it kind of collected together. And I think that's one of the good things that someone said about this uh, documentary is that um, all of this shit is, is kind of a matter of public record. None of this stuff is new in this documentary. Mm-hmm. It has just been compiled in the most compelling, comprehensive way imaginable. And to see all those things together builds this kind of patchwork kind of like tableau of, of, of like a nation just completely riven by, you know, racial conflict, strife and kind of self-loathing basically. Yeah. Uh, Ezra Edelman, who directed the, the, the documentary, he does a fantastic job of just taking his time over these things. Like it would be easy to kind of foreshadow the trial in some way or to kind of start with the trial and jump back. But he really does start, well, he starts at the end because obviously you have the that scene of a, I, th- I assume it's kind of a parole hearing with OJ now that he's in prison mm-hmm. for his his second bizarre crime, and then like they ask him, you know, you were first arrested in 1994, and he looks taken aback that anyone would even dare to ask him about that because obviously it is probably the most the, the defining thing of his life at this point, uh, and then jumps back. But the the fact that you do get three hours in. And they haven't. I I thought it was interesting that you know if if you didn't know who O.J. Simpson was, which would be crazy because I feel like he's one of those people that everyone knows. But like if you had no details at all, you would just you would have no idea what the documentary was about for those first three hours because it's like oh this guy was a great sportsman and also L.A. is uh, kind of systemically racist and the L.A.P.D. is filled with monsters. You know it's kind of going through so much of this kind of deep background stuff that it's it, it's amazing how well he handles all of that information and just how much detail he gives you as if he's like going out you know by the time you get to get to episode three it's like he's saying okay now you've got all of that now we can get into like the sensational stuff mm. how good a job is done of making those first two to three hours balance as humanly possible because there's no escaping the fact that in certain examples and and through kind of a lot of the archive footage we see oj simpson is a very charismatic charming person Mm. i think that's you have to show how charming he was because that's who he was to america for the first 20 something years or the first 30 years of his career you know he was this guy who was incredibly charismatic who was the one black guy that America accepted essentially that, you know, white America really got behind. He was this kind of, you know, he was just this incredibly charming guy who people liked. And I feel like you have to show that side of it before you can show the darker side, his relationship to Nicole Brown Simpson, who his wife, you know, the, the domestic abuse against her, you have to show all of that stuff to really kind of, set up you know what why the the dichotomy between the public oj who was you know sports hero actor guy who went on talk shows and was just kind of endlessly charming and could really just uh who dominated any room he walked in and the private oj who was this 
kind of violent narcissist and and the way in which the private OJ eventually escaped into the real world in the most horrible way imaginable. Mm. And by the time we get to the trial, I found it uh, incredibly interesting because uh, we've kind of mentioned it before, the People versus Edgy Simpson, the FX show that was uh, on this year that kind of started out to be a kind of like a bit of trashy fun, but then ended up being a remarkable piece of television. Obviously, I remember the 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 OJ trial. Watching it, uh, they had a high, you know, could you believe it? on British TV there was a uh, an hourly highlights package every night, like it was the Euros or the World Cup or something that we'd see the the bits from the trial that you know had gone down that day, and there'd be an analysis from kind of experts. Um, and I remember the bits of the trial, but I haven't revisited them. And then we watched People versus OJ Simpson, and I watch it. and I think, wow, well, this is a really decent recreation of the. Um, of the trial and the kind of the, the circus that went around it and you think well obviously they're kind of playing up a lot of those elements because you know I don't remember it being this big and kind of this ridiculous especially with like um, uh, Courtney Vance's portrayal of Johnny Cochran I thought you know he'd gone a bit big in a few places but then you watch the documentary and you realise holy shit he was downplaying that yeah that that's one of the great things about seeing these two so close back to back watching 15 hours of oj simpson related content so mm. close back to back as you do uh the the first one gives you the the sense of the circus of like you say the circus of it all the sensational the tabloidy version of it whilst also you know discussing the the gender and the race stuff which is obviously a huge part of it but then you also get the documentary which then shows you all of the context around it and and james Ponu Wozik, I'm I'm sorry if I mispronounced the name, who writes for the New York Times, said about it that it the two series embody two ways of seeing history, personal versus social, micro versus macro, and saying that essentially what you get from the two is that The People versus O.J. Simpson is a Shakespearean story where the actions are being driven by the individual players and it's all about their personalities and their interpersonal conflicts. And the uh, O.J. made in America is a Greek kind of form of storytelling where everything is being driven by societal forces and it is kind of you know the quote-unquote the gods are kind of driving it all and that's one of the reasons why these two shows are such great compliments to each other is they do cover similar ground but in kind of vastly different and and equally kind of fascinating ways mm. and it's very revealing in the in the 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 uh, made in america that when Marsha Clark says something along the lines of uh, the trial was bigger than the murder case. Hmm. Uh, it was bigger than them. And like, the, that's the point that the, you know, the documentary makes is that this was even beyond being a simple civil rights struggle. Uh, this was this whole kind of uh, affair with the judgment and what that represented. It was actually as kind of a defining moment in uh, kind of modern kind of history which is fucking insane yeah that a trial of of one man for two murders which you know overwhelmingly the evidence kind of points to him having done it would become a flashpoint in kind of american racial history that would become a civil rights case you know that's, that's one of the the great ironies of one of the several ironies working under the surface of it one of which being that uh, O.J. Simpson, a man who was incredibly friendly with the LAPD and was shown deference in the fact that they didn't press charges against him in most of the uh, accounts of domestic abuse against his wife, 
was then defended by people saying, oh, it was a police frame-up. Mm-hmm. And also that his crime was framed as a civil rights issue, even though he had done everything he could to distance himself from the civil rights movement for his entire life. That's one of the, the, the kind of the, the great ironies that really come through when you have that long-range approach. You know, that's something that you couldn't really do in The People versus O.J. Simpson because it's so caught up in the, the moment and the immediacy of it all and the high drama of it all. When you have this kind of 30,000 feet view of the whole thing, you can draw out these threads which are, you know, really fascinating to explore. Mm. And, I, I mean, to a lesser degree, that is, it's, it still manages to kind of maintain that the... The whole kind of thing is about a murder of two people, mm. which is so often forgotten. Yeah, it doesn't get lost too much in the circus to the extent that in the, I believe, the fourth episode when they really go through the steps of how the murder probably happened and they're showing you these really kind of graphic uh, crime scene photos, it forces you to reassess, you know, even though there are these big personalities involved, two people were killed in this this really horrible, violent way that was just like and the, the details of it when they talk about uh, uh ron goldman being essentially in a cage because he was caught between the in the corner of a fence and things like that it's really really heart-rending stuff and and i think that is uh, what it what it reminded me of weirdly in a way was um the book from hell by uh, by alan moore which has mm-hmm. a postscript called dance of the gold chasers where alan moore essentially goes through the entire history of ripperology of people trying to come up with solutions for who the who Jack the Ripper was how these you know what were the connections was it all part of a masonic conspiracy and all this sort of stuff and the entire thing is this really mournful look at the way in which the growth of the cottage industry surrounds surrounding the Jack the Ripper case ultimately destroyed any chance anyone actually has of some sort of understanding or justice or truth and in a way, mm. that's something that parts, elements of uh, OJ Made in America kind of had for me, was it did have that quality of making you say, you know, all of this sensational stuff happened around this trial, but at the but every so often it does just remind you. Also, by the way, two people who were like young and promising young people died and, you know, they should have been allowed to live and to kind of see what the future had for them and they didn't have that opportunity. Mm. it's i would kind of uh warn people that like it's pretty hardcore that mm. episode especially for uh, episode number four um it is uh incredibly tough to watch um but then i also found it very peculiar that they had no problem showing kind of gruesome close-ups of a murder scene but would uh, kind of bleep out the swearing yeah, that i think that gets to deeper problems in american society that you can't have swearing on espn uh, but yeah, that was that was very very strange. And also, as um, as hardcore as the entire documentary is, it's obviously very serious and very bleak in its assessment of what happened. And you know, just particularly in in essentially looking at the way in which society failed Nicole Brown Simpson in every ways, and how the LAPD failed her on multiple occasions. There are also times when it's surprisingly funny, uh, particularly Carl Douglas who at one point when they talk about remodeling, what redesigning the interior of OJ Simpson's house to make him appear more 
black than he actually was uh, in terms of taking out all the pictures of white people and putting in African art. He mm-hmm. says, you know, if he'd been Hispanic, I would have had I would have had pictures of him in a sombrero and everything like that. There also was a moment that made me laugh out loud. I don't know if it was the same for you, but there was a moment that has kind of arrested development level um, editing, which is when after OJ is convicted in his trial in 2008, they're, they, they're talking to the attorney outside and he says, you know, a man is going to prison. No one should be happy about this. And then it cuts instantly to Ron Goldman's parents. And he just goes, we're thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, it really made me laugh. Uh, and even though it's a pretty somber moment, and, you know, that it raises all these questions about, you know, the notion that the nature of, of justice in the kind of the strictest sense, whether or not him getting 33 years for essentially quite minor crimes is justice for the fact that he didn't go to prison for the the more serious crimes he committed and everything. It it was interesting the way that scene was assembled. It did seem to be something of a release after seven plus hours of kind of largely, uh, largely kind of dark uh, bleakness. Mm. I, th- I thought that I didn't really know anything about OJ post trial, kind of post verdict as it were. I knew that, Obviously, he's in prison now, and I kind of knew that it was, you know, some kind of uh, crime he'd done in Las Vegas around about memorabilia. But all of that stuff, essentially, the descent into reality TV, uh, TMZ, kind of, kind of just bizarreness, uh, was kind of fascinating, and it seemed to be the only logical conclusion to this bizarre tale that someone could go through this, and their only way they could do anything is to become essentially uh, a reality TV parody of a murderer, I guess. He had like a prank show, which Mm. was kind of just, you know, news to me. Uh, He did like a rap video. And it's just only in today's kind of TMZ, keeping up with the Kardashians climate, could that even be a viable thing? Yeah, it's very interesting that, um, that that kind of last episode, which deals with his post-trial life, the bit, or rather his inter-trial life, essentially, um, mm. and uh, talking about how essentially the trial laid bare how hollow his life had been before he was arrested, because there is a sense that he was just this guy who was who didn't really have any real friends. He was just surrounded by hangers-on who liked him because he was a rich guy, and because he gained them access to like exclusive clubs and everything like that, and then the trial strips all of that acceptance away. And even though he like made some movements into, you know, like he went to church and things like that, he tried to ingratiate himself a bit more in the black community. It certainly felt like he was putting on an act as he had been putting on an act for most of his life. Basically. I thought it was very interesting that the way the last episode did just kind of show how that hollowness eventually consumed him because the only people who had spent time with him after the trial, the first trial were, uh, scumbags essentially it seems yeah and uh, it was kind of interesting to see how I mean because I didn't know you know his agent is interviewed all throughout the the documentary and it's only towards the end that you realise how uh, kind of tangled up he is in the whole um, second trial uh, which uh, for those of you who kind of don't know the details um, OJ Simpson is currently serving a uh, 33 year sentence uh for what must have been the most ill conceived crime ever which appeared to be executed by uh people driving a clown car uh to a <laughs> hotel to perform uh what can only be 
described as the stupidest armed robbery in history. Yeah, and also the details of it was so murky that even though uh, Edelman goes after goes out of his way to try and kind of explain everything in the clearest details, even the people involved don't seem to know whether or not he was set up, that this guy had arranged like a fake thing where he thought he was going to get all of his uh, memorabilia back and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, it just it was just this complete farce that ended up with him being sent to jail for 33 years. And yeah, it's just it's just strange seeing all of this stuff unfold and all these guys talking about it and also hearing it all captured because it was all being taped Mm. and just hearing like, oh, wow, this this thing went completely off the rails and out of hand almost instantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was kind of like the type of memorabilia heist that the cast of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia might have been involved with. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was that kind of level of stupidity that, you know, they turn up at the... They get lost on the way to the room, trying to find the room. <laughs> it's kind of had a spinal tap element to it. And, you know, I can kind of make light of this because no one was in any way harmed uh, in this robbery beyond, I think, maybe someone had their cell phone taken, I think, was yeah. the kind of the, the, the most anyone because it was inconvenienced by it. But yeah, it it just seems to be like this kind of weird chapter, uh, kind of ending the the weirdest book of all time, which has the most deeply depressing middle section you can think of. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it it it's just I think also just the way the documentary is broken up. I might, I mean, you basically watched it all in one day, didn't you? Yeah, I I perhaps wouldn't recommend doing that because <laughs> uh, as compelling as the film is, you you're gonna need a serious pick me up afterwards. Yeah, I think it's interesting the way it is broken up like that, that like that whole post-trial segment, the, the the weird time he spent in Florida and everything, that all, that really needs to be separate from the body of the trial. And I think the way that uh, it's paced and broken up and how all of the, the events are scattered throughout it is really masterfully done in terms of, certainly in terms of airing it episodically over five nights, because I think it would be, just so whiplash inducing to go from kind of like that fourth episode which is just so kind of dark and sad and horrible to this like bumbling final thing where he just ends up in prison almost just through his own kind of sheer hubris and his own stupidity you know i think that that really does need to be its own episode because tonally those things even though it works as a whole it's just so it's so bizarre to see how he fell after you know escaping uh defeating the the justice system so completely the first time round mm. how how kind of well do they work as companion pieces the people versus oj simpson and uh oj simpson made in america do you think that you could probably watch one or the other um or do you think they're kind of they're both bring enough new things to them to, to justify if you're, you know, time poor as people are these days, uh, watching one or the other? Uh, I think they are, they both work brilliantly as separate works of arts. Cause like, I, I certainly didn't feel after watching the people versus OJ Simpson that it was incomplete. I felt that I got a good sense of what the trial was, what the factors were, who the characters all were against each other. I got a, a thrill out of then reading Jeffrey Tubin's book and seeing, oh my God, how much of this stuff actually did happen. There's not a lot of embellishment in that show, mm-hmm. uh, except in the stylization, I guess. But then after watching Made in America, I was like, oh, I needed to see this documentary as well. I needed all of that context to kind of really 
explain the unique cultural and social situation within which this that we keep going back this circus unfolded you know i think watching it watching the people versus jerry simpson in isolation is it's very entertaining and engrossing and kind of heartbreaking at times and it's got great performances but then when you see made in america it does just brings everything into sh- such sharp relief and just between the two of them they give you such a full picture but even after 15 hours or so you still then it still makes you thinking there's leaves you thinking there's still more to see because there are so many threads that the two between them pick up and then due to time restraints they just can't explore enough uh so it just kind of feels that even the that 15 hours of this stuff is it's not too much it almost feels like it's just the beginning mm. and i know that like we've talked about this about this before we dedicated the whole episode uh, to it earlier this year about how true crime is is kind of like very big right now but i always think about this in the context of serial the first season definitely um talking about how adnan syed was convicted for a, you know went down for a kind of a life sentence with literally no evidence no motive no circumstantial evidence no forensic evidence no kind of physical evidence no witnesses um, just one man's testimony put him away for life. Whereas in the O.J. Simpson case, uh, we've got a albeit very famous man with a uh, incredibly powerful uh, legal team behind him, uh, with an awful lot of the evidence pointing towards uh, just the one person doing it. Uh, that person being O.J. Simpson, uh, you know, a kind of uh, a flight from justice. Um, a lot of circumstantial evidence, a lot of physical evidence, a lot of kind of you know forensic evidence. Uh, a lot of witnesses uh, you know the, you see what I'm trying to get out here and you know he managed to get away with I'm not going to say murder but he managed to get away with murder yeah he got away with murders yeah yeah, yeah. the, the um, James Cameron sequel to murder yeah, um, yeah I think it, the the one thing I think that the doc, that neither the documentary nor the miniseries really got across which I think probably they they could have done is I don't feel they've really emphasised enough just how incompetent the prosecution were and mm-hmm. the kind of mistakes they obviously there's the, the glove fiasco which is just one of those things that even when you watch it now even when you have people commenting on it even when it's broken down scene but by, by, moment by moment it's still incredible to watch it and think i can't believe anyone would fuck up this badly mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and, and to the, watch darden try and um um explain it by when he's still got the glove expert on the stand and he's completely flustered and he's saying do you think that you know mr simpson has just uh demonstrated how someone normally puts on a glove in your experience and then mm-hmm. i think at some point eo steps in and just says uh mr darden this 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 isn't going anywhere <laughs> you know what yeah I mean? and it's just it's so kind of it's really kind of interesting as we talk about them as companion pieces to see how that unfolded in the people versus OJ Simpson, where we were privy to personal moments between Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden about the doubts about doing that. And then watching it in the, the documentary by just seeing the, the courtroom footage. Uh, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah. I think that is the only thing I think they, they could have emphasized more because obviously the, the lesson to take from that and the comparison to something like serial uh, being that if you have, a lot of money and if you're very very famous and particularly if you live in LA where there is a lot of deferential treatment towards famous people just 
systemically because it's such a big part of what that city is um you know it's easy to just say oh it's just because of money i feel like they they didn't emphasize enough just the the ways in which the try the, the prosecutions just messed up everything in like all of these different ways but at the same time you know that's a documentary in itself really like there were so many mistakes made that you could really dedicate a whole kind of three or four hours just to catalog it all but so i think thematically it makes sense they didn't focus on it that much but it's the sort of thing that uh comes through in like like i say in in the run of his life which really does kind of emphasize all the things all the mistakes that were made which uh you, you just just because it's already seven and a half hours you can't go into it even further in the documentary mm, yeah, yeah well you know it's a tough watch but uh kind of we would definitely recommend that people see all of it um do you know where it's available beyond the kind of usual outlets it's currently on demand in the u.s through you know just on-demand services, ESPN's app, I believe you can watch it on. It's going to be available on DVD soon, as as most 30 for 30 things are. And also, if, you know, recent form is anything to go by, it's almost certain to show up on Netflix in the near future because Netflix have gotten, I, I assume because they have this kind of big, these big deals with Disney and ESPN is owned by Disney, that they they get a lot of the 30 for 30 stuff on there. So I would imagine in the very near future it will show up on Netflix. Mm, yes, uh, and do watch it, um, because uh, whilst it is uh, very hard to uh, sit through at times, um, it is kind of a fascinating examination of, a, of an entire uh, country and culture. If you feel like you want a bit of light Friday night, you know, date movie, then that's... Probably the best you can hope for. What are we going to pick for recommends this week, Ed? Uh, I'm going to go to the entire opposite end of the, the scale on this one and recommend the new Pixar film, Finding Dory. Now, when we watched Monsters University several years ago, when we talked about Monsters University, we both essentially said it was a film that no one asked for, that didn't need to exist, but was still pretty good, even though it's a film that, again, no one asked for and it didn't need to exist. And... Finding Dory is in a similar category. No one really needs to know the origin for Just Keep Swimming or why Dory can speak to whales. You know, this is all stuff that was minor character details in Finding Nemo that doesn't really need to be over-explained. But uh, Andrew Stanton, in returning to the characters, you know, he he really does bring a sweetness to it, which is which is very lovely. Ellen Ge- the Generous gives a legitimately great performance as Dory in emphasising kind of the darker side of her short-term memory loss the fact that it does at times leave her incredibly scared and vulnerable particularly uh, in one sequence in which she has to try and navigate a series of pipes in the marine life institute and she very quickly forgets which way she's meant to be going so she just runs around and it's genuinely anxiety inducing and really effective sequence uh and it's just a very it's just lovely to return to these characters that it genuinely adds depth to dory's character and uh, as is customary with all Pixar films, it made me cry within the opening five minutes. So I I recommend it at least partly on the fact that it had a very profound emotional effect on me that I wasn't expecting because I didn't have particularly high expectations, but also because I feel that even though it's a little sillier in places than the original, it's also hugely enjoyable and a really, really worthy follow-up to one of Pixar's best films. Mm. 
Cool. I'm um, going to bring things back to the uh, kind of true crime area. Um, now Ed has made you all think about kind of talking fish for a bit. Um, I'm going to kind of pile on the misery um, with a podcast that I would recommend um, called Untold, uh, the Daniel Morgan murder. Uh, I think obviously in the wake of Serial and Making a Murder, everyone's kind of after the hot new thing. Uh, and this is a British podcast um, that is currently on part four. Um, and it's a, a fascinating tale of uh, the aforementioned Daniel Morgan, who was a uh, private eye in 80s London uh, and was uh, kind of brutally murdered, but was found with a thousand pounds in his pocket. And it is uh, talked about in the show as being the most investigated crime, uh, investigated murder in British criminal history. Uh, which is fascinating because you think, I have no idea about this case and I've got no idea, you know, about who any of these people are or what. Why haven't I heard about it? And then the more the show goes on, you realise there's pretty good reasons why you haven't heard of it because it uh, involves an awful lot of corrupt police and also is uh, heavily involved, uh, appears to be Rupert Murdoch's News International. Uh, and it's unfolding in a uh, very kind of compelling fashion. And with like Serial did uh, so well, each episode um, seems to kind of pile on more mystery uh, and give you with more que- leave you with more questions than you get answers. Um, and I would uh, genuinely recommend that if you don't want to be cheered up by Pixar please, you know, plug yourself into that because, um, yeah, it's a pretty grisly murder case. So if you want to feel bad about everything, then why not? Yeah, I think if you want to kind of, what you want to do is you want to listen to that, watch OJ Simpson, but also have Pixar in the middle because then you get kind of like a joy sandwich on misery bread. Mm, Yeah, yeah. That is a pretty excellent way to describe it. Okay, cool, listeners. That's your lot on the subject of OJ Simpson. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook too. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, our look at uh, the HBO triumvirate of Game of Thrones, Silicon Valley, and Veep, which all come uh, to a glorious end tonight and so we will be talking about them next week but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me